0: Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 9, Matthew chapter 9, we'll be there this morning in verses 14 to 17 of Matthew chapter 9. It's on page 814 of the Pew Bible, if you're using one of those. Read with me the words of this passage, the word of the Lord. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. You pray with me. Father, we give thanks for your word. We give thanks, Lord, for this precious time of worship that we have already been engaging in this morning, Lord. Uh, Singing of our longing for your return, for the fullness of your kingdom, for the bridegroom to return to his bride. So, Father, I pray that as we continue in that spirit of longing this morning, I ask, Father, that your word would speak clearly to us. Father, I ask that you would uh, use uh, my, uh, my words to magnify what it is that your word says, not to hinder it. Not to stand in the way of the words of Christ, but only to point to what He said and to amplify it that we might hear it, that it might take root deep within us and bear fruit. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we continue our study of the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we are still in this section in Matthew chapters 8 and 9, which uh, Trey and Jordan have been uh, so excellently uh, walking, through us, through, walking through with us and guiding us through. Um, and uh, it's important when we are in sections like this in the Gospels to always take a moment at the beginning and remind ourselves of where we are, what's going on. Uh, because especially in these sections in Matthew chapter 8 and 9, places like this where we have uh, miracle scene after miracle scene, healing scene after healing scene, uh, it can sometimes become easy to uh, to lose sight of the forest uh, for the trees. It can sometimes just sort of begin to feel like an anthology or collection of Jesus healing stories or something uh, rather than a, a continual through line, a narrative with intention behind how these things are put together and what is in concluded. And I think that, uh, that Trey and Jordan have done a great job of helping us uh, bear that in mind over these last several weeks and months even, I think. Um, so we find ourselves in this section in Matthew 8 and 9, uh, in between the uh, first major discourse section of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel and the second major discourse of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew's Gospel um, uh, usually organized around these five big discourses of Jesus. Uh, And so that first major discourse was, of course, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 to 7, which uh, we we spent so much time in uh, uh, in last year and and perhaps even before then. Uh, We spent a long time in the Sermon on the Mount just unpacking the riches there. And then in chapter 10, uh, Jesus will have his discourse where he commissions his disciples and sends them out uh, on, on mission to continue his mission. Uh, a lot of the things that he will send them out to do are some of the same things that we see Jesus doing here in chapters 8 and 9. But here in this section, uh, we are presented with several, uh, several things uh, and again, uh, Trey had did a great job, especially a couple of weeks ago uh, when I was listening to his sermon on the first part of chapter 9. He did a great job of pointing out some of these major themes that are brought up again and again and again by these scenes. One of the preeminent questions that's being asked in this section is, who is Jesus? Right. Who is this Jesus. And time and time again, in various ways, these scenes are intended to answer that question for us and to point to the fact that He is the Messiah. He is the long-awaited, long-hoped-for Messiah. And so with the Messiah, with His entrance, also comes His kingdom. And so alongside this question of the nature of the Messiah, who this Jesus is, is what is the nature of His kingdom? And these these are at the forefront of all of these scenes that we have encountered up to this point. And the situation is no different for our passage this morning. We continue to be faced with this question of Jesus' messiahship and his kingdom. Alongside that question of who is Jesus and what is the nature of his messiahship, what is the nature of his kingdom, has also been another question and that is who are Jesus' disciples? And what are they to look like? What does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus? We saw this uh, even back in chapter 8. In chapter 8, verse 19, where we see a scribe come to Jesus and say, "'Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go.'" To which Jesus replies, "'Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head.'" And then another disciple comes and says to him, "'Lord, let me first go and bury my father.'" And Jesus says to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, there are lots of things we might say about that passage, and you can go back and look at the sermon that was preached on that passage to dig deeper into some of that. But whatever else we might notice, uh, we might point out here that, that in that section we have these questions posed. Who is this Messiah? In the statement that Jesus makes about the Son of Man not having anywhere to lay his head, he speaks in part to that question. And we also have uh, an indication of what it is to be a disciple of Jesus and the great cost that is required to be a disciple of Jesus. We also saw this question of uh, Jesus' Messiahship and His kingdom and His disciples in the passage that we looked at last week that Jordan walked us through, um, where Jesus is seen reclining at table with tax collectors and with sinners just after He calls a tax collector to become one of his disciples. And we see there that these, it seems, are the kinds of folks from which Jesus calls his disciples. That passage ended with Jesus' statement, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. An indictment on the Pharisees who are posing a question to him as to how he could associate with people such as this. And so along the way in this section, we are starting to get a sense of the nature of this Messiah, the nature of his kingdom, and the nature of his disciples. And it seems that these things look perhaps a little different than some might have expected them to look. And I think that in our passage this morning, uh, we get uh, a further indicator of perhaps why uh, so many might Not be seeing uh, what the true nature of this kingdom is, what the true nature of being a disciple of Jesus is. I think it gives us a big answer to that. So, as we shift from last week's passage, which had to do with dining and food and eating, all things that we're all very enthusiastic about, I'm sure, and we turn now to our passage, we see another dining slash food related controversy. Uh, One commentator uh, that I was reading, uh, summarized the the, the relationship between these two passages and the transition between them this way. Uh, He said, quote, some religious people were disturbed that Jesus would eat with sinners. That's the last passage. In a manner of speaking, others were disturbed that he ate at all. And that brings us to the controversy that we find in our passage this morning, which is a controversy involving the nature of fasting. Now, I want to say at the outset here that this, despite what may first seem to be the case, uh, this is not solely a passage on fasting. And this is, this is not just a message on fasting. In fact, it, 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 it is a sermon on fasting, but it also isn't. It speaks to fasting, but there are much, much, much larger implications involved in what Jesus is saying here with regard to the nature of His Messiahship, His disciples, and His kingdom. We've all heard messages, I'm sure, on fasting, uh, uh, usually focused on the, uh, the why of fasting, the theological benefits, why do we undertake something like a fast, um, as well as the how, how do we go about doing that, right? Um, and, and this is not uh, a message on the, necessarily on the how-to of, of fasting. I don't think that's so much at the central focus here. Uh, to get some of that, you need to go back to Matthew 6, where Jesus gives some more specific instructions on fasting. But I think that here, uh, fasting is really kind of the inciting moment that brings about what Jesus says here. It's really the vehicle that Jesus uses to address the relationship of this old and this new, Um, this old in light of His coming. Something new has come, and so something new must take place. Everything that has gone before must be understood and reoriented around this new thing that has taken place, and that new thing is the coming of Christ and His kingdom um i uh, i had thought of as a as a potential uh title for this uh sermon uh, not so fast uh and and the reason for that is because i think uh, it's 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 funny you laughed um but also because it it i think it works on a couple of different levels it it's it encourages us to 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 say not so fast perhaps there's more here than what meets the eye on first reading but also not so fast because, you know, Jesus isn't fasting or he's not fasting like John It works on multiple levels. It's, it's a great title. Maybe we should have gone with it. Um, the structure of this passage is pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward. It's four verses. Um, and, and the way that it breaks down is we have in verse 14 the question posed to Jesus by the disciples of John the Baptist and then in verses 15 to 17, we have Jesus' answer. And Jesus' answer begins with a question. Jesus is fond of responding to questions with questions. Right? Uh, and so he begins with a question in response to their question, and that question feeds into the first of three metaphors that Jesus is going to use to answer that original question. But again, I want to stress, and I, think, I hope that we'll see this as we get into the text, that while Jesus is speaking to that original question, he is also speaking to something much larger and much deeper. He's actually getting at the, the, the motivation and the worldview behind that question uh, and the implications of Christ's advent, of his coming and his kingdom upon the attitudes and perspectives that people have upon rituals, things like fasting. okay. And so let's walk through the passage and uh, notice uh, some, of the, some of the details. And then, uh, and then I want us to, to draw back a little bit and ask the question of what exactly it is that Jesus means by these metaphors. What is it that he is trying to communicate? So beginning in verse 14, I'll read it again. The disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, uh, all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, include this scene. And in all three scenes, we have the disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees connected, mentioned together in in this way. And so right off the bat, we have a rather surprising Uh, detail here. The fact that John's disciples would be mentioned alongside the Pharisees in this manner. John the Baptist's disciples fast and the Pharisees fast. Now, the reason why this is surprising, if you you aren't picking up why that might be surprising, just go back a few chapters to Matthew chapter 3 and read uh, John the Baptist's first recorded interaction with the Pharisees. Um, Many of you, when you arrived this morning, probably greeted one another with a friendly hello. I don't imagine many of you looked at someone and said, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. But that's what John says to the Pharisees upon first seeing them when he is baptizing in the Jordan River. And so uh, these are not necessarily groups that we might think would go together. And so, but the point, I think, in the passage is not to indicate that John the Baptist's disciples and the Pharisees are in complete lockstep agreement. Um, we, we don't have real specifics given on the nature of the fasting that they're engaging in, and it's also certainly not saying that they would agree on every other front. But I think part of what's happening here in, in mentioning these two groups together is to highlight the starkness of the difference between Jesus and His disciples on the one hand and John the Baptist's disciples and the Pharisees on the other hand. Um, One commentator described it this way, quote, Quite clearly, Matthew does not mention the common fasting practices of the disciples of John and the Pharisees in order to suggest any fundamental commonality. The point is, rather, that the very fact Of a shared practice, despite the tension and difference, throws into sharper relief the contrasting failure, in their eyes, of Jesus to impose a similar discipline on his own disciples. In other words, the emphasis is not so much on saying that John the Baptist's disciples and the Pharisees observe the same fast or are in complete lockstep agreement on this point. But rather on the fact that Jesus and his disciples are so drastically different, even from these two other groups, which are so radically different in so many other ways. All right. So that's the first surprising uh, thing that we notice right off the bat in verse 14. Now, with regard to the question that is that, that is itself itself asked in verse 14. Um, is, again, related to the nature of fasting. They observe that they fast, the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast. What's up with that, Jesus? And so we are. Uh, we might comment a little bit on what it is the, that, that is the nature of the fasting that they have in mind. And the text doesn't give us a lot of details, um, but we do know a uh, of couple of things. One thing that we know is that While we have examples all throughout the Old Testament uh, and even into the New Testament of people engaging in in fasting, the only uh, fast that is explicitly commanded in the Old Testament is the one in Leviticus 16 in association with the Day of Atonement. Uh, And so that doesn't seem to be what we have in mind here. This seems to be a more regular, voluntary sort of fast that that, uh, the Pharisees and John's disciples engaged in. We know from elsewhere uh, that the, the, the Pharisees did regularly fast. So if you were to go to, over to Luke chapter 18, with the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, the Pharisee in that parable, when he's puffing himself up, uh, part of his boast is that he fasts twice a week. right? So and, and then we have other texts which seem to indicate perhaps a fast on Monday and Thursday. Uh, and in fact, in the... Uh, the, the Didache, which is a, an early Christian text, um, you have uh, this attempt to differentiate Christians from the so-called hypocrites. The hypocrites fast on Monday and Thursday, and so you must fast on Wednesday and Friday, right? You don't want to be fasting on the same days as the hypocrites. That's probably what is in view here, is some sort of regular voluntary fast that they would have engaged in that apparently, for whatever reason, Jesus and His disciples are not partaking of. So, uh, obviously they're fasting, and obviously Jesus' disciples are not fasting. They make this observation, they ask the question. Uh, This is not the first reference to fasting that we have in uh, Matthew's Gospel, uh, but it is the last. Uh, So, prior to this point, we have Jesus fasting in the wilderness... 40 days and 40 nights in Matthew chapter 4, uh, and that there seems to be a significant biblical theological significance to what Jesus is doing there in that scene. We also have in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus' instructions about how to fast, what is the proper mode of fasting when you fast, and then here in our passage this morning. After this, we don't have another record of Jesus or his disciples fasting again for the rest of Matthew's gospel. And in fact, the, the next time we have anything that, that, that really re- remotely resembles a reference to this is in Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus uh, is, is describing the way that John was perceived versus the way that he was perceived when they came, right? And uh, Jesus says in Matthew eleven eighteen 18 to 19... For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So while we may allow for perhaps some measure of caricature here in these descriptions with the way that uh, John and Jesus were perceived, what is at least clear is that Jesus apparently was not known for his fasting. Uh, that, that, that is a big difference between him and, and John that we see. So, aside from just the fact that there is this difference between the two, that John's disciples do fast, Jesus' disciples are not fasting, we, are, uh, we might wonder about the motivation behind that question itself. So not just the fact that they notice the difference and they ask the question, but what is the, their motivation for asking why there is this difference. Um, Obviously, it's important to them. Uh, Why else would they bother to ask this question uh, if it wasn't? So it was clearly a significant aspect of their devotional lives. And in their minds, it would be suspect, or at least curious, why Jesus and his disciples would not engage in something that is so important such an important ritual that they themselves uh, regard so highly. And so there are discussions about what exactly is the motivation here, and, and we will uh, sort of unpack this at greater length uh, near the end of our message this morning. But to begin uh, addressing some of these issues, uh, I want to note that some will read in this um, an attempt... So with the question that's asked, some will read in this an attempt to impose uh, legalism upon Jesus, um, as if this is one of those situations where Jesus is being held liable for having violated a commandment that isn't actually in the law or something, like scenes where the Pharisees take issue with Jesus for violating uh, a commandment. It turns out that commandment is, is in their tradition of the elders. It's actually not a commandment of the Old Testament. And so it's some sort of uh, legalism that is that is that is pushed upon, upon Jesus. However, I don't think that that's what's going on here in this passage. Uh, as I mentioned already, I'll unpack this at greater length uh, in a few minutes. Um, but at the moment, I just want to point out a couple of things here at the outset, why I don't think that the, 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 the legalism issue is primarily what's in view. Um, the first that I'll mention is the fact that it is John's disciples who are asking this uh, question. Uh, and so while they're joined together with the Pharisees, uh, we might perhaps assume that their motivation for the question could be perhaps more sincere than the Pharisees. Uh, and the Pharisees might have been uh, had a bit, bit of a different uh, motivation in mind. Perhaps they would have more interest in, in, in trying to catch Jesus out in some way. But perhaps John's disciples, given if they were listening to what their leader, John the Baptist, was saying about who Jesus is, then perhaps they would have a more sincere interest in asking this question. Secondly, I just want to point out that as becomes clear with Jesus' response in verse 15, Jesus doesn't say that fasting is over. And He doesn't even take explicit issue with how it is that they are fasting or when they fast. He doesn't have anything explicit to say that in, about that in this passage. The issue is that they aren't accounting for what time it is and who is in their midst. This is the central issue that Jesus is, is wanting to highlight. And so for, for those reasons, there are other reasons that I'll, I'll mention uh, a little later, but, but those are a couple of reasons why I don't think that the, that the legalism argument quite holds up. So moving on then from that question that's asked in verse 14 into verse 15 with Jesus's response, as I've already pointed out, Jesus responds with a question of his own. So in response to the question, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast, Jesus poses the question, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? And so Jesus launches us into this first of three metaphors, which he's going to use to answer that initial question. Now, the first metaphor has to do with the scene of a wedding feast. And the question that he asks, the way that it's constructed in the Greek, indicates that Jesus expects a negative answer. So the correct response to his question is, no, the wedding guests cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them. Now, the bridegroom imagery, this wedding bridegroom language, is present in all sorts of other contexts, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, we see various passages where God himself is described like a husband, like a bridegroom to his people. So just a few examples of this might be in a place like Isaiah 54. In Isaiah 54, it says this, For your Maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is His name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth He is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. Again, in Isaiah 62, it says, You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. So there again, God is depicted in this role as husband, as bridegroom. And then one of the most famous, of course, is in Hosea. In Hosea chapter 2, where the Lord says, In that day you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground, And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. So, those are some of the examples, some examples in the Old Testament where God Himself is described as a husband to His people as a bridegroom who redeems them. This language also gets carried over to describe the the Messiah and His coming and this in association with the Messianic banquet, which is what the New Testament picks up on. We see this here in our passage. Uh, We see it later in Matthew's gospel. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus will use this imagery again of a wedding feast to describe what the kingdom of heaven is like. And then in Matthew 25, we have this, this parable of, of the virgins awaiting the return of their bridegroom. Uh, also in Revelation, uh, in Revelation 19, which, which Brett has been uh, walking us through in, in past weeks, and then into chapter 21, we have uh, this imagery of the marriage supper of the Lamb. This, this, this ultimate, final culmination, the consummation of this great wedding feast that we see referenced here in Matthew's Gospel. And so, in taking up this language of the bridegroom, this imagery of the wedding feast, Jesus is therefore making a messianic statement. He is saying that the messianic age has arrived. And part of what Jesus is wanting to point out in bringing this imagery to bear, actually the major point that he wants to highlight, is the incongruity, the the not-fittedness of the behavior or the understanding of John's disciples and the Pharisees and the reality of the situation that the Messianic Age has dawned. The Messianic Age is here And so he uses the imagery of a wedding feast to highlight this. And he does this to highlight that a wedding feast was not and is not a time for fasting. Wedding feasts, both in the ancient world and today, are times of celebration, usually associated with good food and good drink, sometimes a little too much good drink in some situations. But the implication of the metaphor is that this period of Jesus' presence here with his disciples is like the period of a wedding feast, of a wedding festival. And that is a time of great rejoicing, not a time of sorrow or mourning. Now, since I've mentioned mourning, I want to say something about Jesus' choice of that word in particular here in in uh, in this question that he asks. The term mourn appearing here strikes a rather ominous note here in the midst of this metaphor about a, a wedding festival where you're not supposed to mourn and leads us to, uh, to, to anticipate the rather odd and troublesome reference that comes in the later part of verse 15 when Jesus refers to the bridegroom being taken away. Okay, well, I'll have more to say that, about that in just a moment, but But both Mark and Luke both refer to the bridegroom being taken away. But Matthew is the only one who mentions mourning here, uh, specifically. And, And what's interesting to notice is that Jesus uses that term in response to the question about fasting. So they ask the question in 14, why do we and the Pharisees fast? And in response, Jesus doesn't say, can the wedding guests fast as long as the bridegroom is with them? He says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? And this indicates that the the fasting that is assumed by Jesus here was was associated with mourning. And, And so as the rest of this verse will show us, fasting is appropriate during periods of mourning. But right now, Jesus says, is not one of those times. This is not a period of mourning. Okay. So back to the note about the, the bridegroom being taken away. In the midst of this metaphor about this wedding feast, this time of celebration when uh, the attendants of the bridegroom should not fast, Jesus makes reference to the bridegroom being taken away. And he says, then they will fast. Now, this is jarring, okay? This detail is jarring. It is, as uh, Leon Morris in his commentary on Matthew, he describes it as an alien element uh, in this marriage imagery, right? Because we don't expect when we're reading about a, 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 a se- well, a wedding celebration that, oh, and then there was this part where the bridegroom gets taken away. You know, as happens. No, that's, that's odd. Now, the, the, the word itself, taken away, uh, doesn't necessarily imply any sort of violent removal. But it is interesting to notice that Jesus speaks of the bridegroom being taken away and not of the bridegroom going away. Uh, and so this seems to be a pretty clear uh, indicator that what is in view here is His crucifixion, His death that is to come when He is taken away. Uh, perhaps borrowing imagery from Isaiah 53... Uh, where the suffering servant is said by oppression and judgment to be taken away. And Jesus says that at that time, the wedding attendants will fast. Not right now, but when the bridegroom's taken away, they will fast. And so when Jesus indicates that, we have to notice that Jesus cannot be made to say here that fasting is wrong-headed in general, and ought to be completely done away with. Uh, But just at this particular time, when He is addressing John's disciples, while the bridegroom is here, it's not appropriate. We notice that Jesus does not command them to fast, but prophesies that they will. He says they will fast. And if we were to turn and go read through the book of Acts, we would see several examples where the early Christians do fast on various occasions. And so given the connection that Jesus makes between fasting and mourning here, it may be that Jesus is here indicating that following his removal, when he is taken away, there will be still occasion for mourning. Although I think what Jesus is wanting to highlight is that it's different than how it was before. Okay, We'll return to that point as well. So Jesus follows up that first metaphor... Involving the, the wedding feast with two further metaphors. And at first, at least to me, these second and third metaphors seem a little strange. Following right on the heels of this metaphor of a bridegroom and his wedding attendance. But again, remember, Jesus is still speaking to that initial question. Why is it that we fast and you don't? But again, as I mentioned earlier, I want to reiterate again, he is speaking to a much larger issue as well. So the second and third metaphors, of course, have to do with this metaphor of a piece of unshrunk cloth being put onto an old garment in verse 16, and then this metaphor of new wine being put into old wineskins in verse 17. And the metaphors themselves, I think, are fairly easy for us to understand in terms of what it is that's being Describe. They, they draw from imagery which would have been familiar to Jesus' audience and, and imagery that's pretty easily understandable even, even for us today. So both of these scenes, as we'll see, involve several things in common. They have similar sorts of elements. Both, and both of them are intended to highlight the, the incongruity. So I mentioned that word already, Jesus pointing out the incongruity of fasting while a wedding feast is going on. These two metaphors likewise highlight the incongruity of the new and the old. So both metaphors have something old and something new. So whether it be an old garment and a new piece of unshrunk cloth or old wineskins and new wine, both of them have the application of the new thing to the old, and both of them describe the result of the application of that new thing to the old, which turns out is a situation that is worse than when we started because the new and the old don't fit. There is an incongruity involved here. So beginning with the first metaphor, the focus again of this new patch. So I'll just read it in verse 16. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. So once again, the new and old, new applied to the old result, Worse than when we started, okay? And again, the focus is the incongruity of that new unshrunk patch and that old garment. They don't fit. The new patch has not been shrunk like the old garment, which has long since shrunk. And this isn't far removed from our own lives, right? When we go and try on new clothes, we go clothes shopping, we try to bear in mind that we should account for the likelihood that these new clothes will shrink slightly upon that first laundering, right? Uh, Perhaps you have, uh, you know, perhaps you have had mothers telling you, or perhaps you've said it yourself, you know, that'll draw up, you know. You've heard that, I don't know, people in Texas don't speak that much different than people in Alabama, so I assume that we have a common language sufficient enough to uh, communicate here. So we either bear that in mind, okay, maybe go a little little bigger because it's going to draw up, or we may try to uh, look for clothes that are pre-shrunk, right? We have pre-shrunk clothes. Um, in order to try to avoid a situation where we buy a shirt that uh, hits our belt when we try it on at the store, but suddenly becomes a crop top when we pull it out of the dryer, uh, which is a very, very awkward around the office, gentlemen. So. so there's only a couple of solutions to this situation, right? Uh, to how we would patch the tear in the old garment. And the first option is to patch that tear with a piece of cloth that has been shrunk, right? So rather than taking a new unshrunk piece and applying it, we take a patch that has been shrunk and apply it. That is, we accommodate the new to the old. Or we don't patch the old garment, but instead replace it with a new garment. And Jesus isn't explicit about which of those Routes to take with this first metaphor, but I think given what he says about the the wine and the wineskins in verse 17, it seems that his solution is the second one, to replace the old with the new. So with that being said, let's look at the third metaphor in verse 17. So once again, we have the three elements. So Jesus says, neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. So once again, we have those same uh, elements. New wine, old wineskins, the unthinkable takes place, right? New wine put into old wineskins. Jesus says, nobody does this. This is unthinkable. And the result, the skins burst, the wine is spilled, the skins and the wine are ruined. But unlike the previous metaphor, here we get a better alternative, a solution. And that is, instead, we put new wine into fresh wineskins so that in this way we may preserve both of them. Okay. Now, and, 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 and again, just to, to, to unpack a little bit of what is at issue here, uh, the wineskins that Jesus is referring to would be made by uh, taking an animal, killing it, Uh, cutting off its head and feet, uh, skinning the carcass, sewing the skin up, and usually sealing off all openings with perhaps the exception of one, usually the neck. Um, And and that is what you would put your wine in. Now, over time, of course, that skin would become hard and brittle, meaning that if you were to put new wine that is still fermenting into that old wineskin that's become old and brittle, uh, lost some of its elasticity, then the gases released by the fermentation process um, would would cause the, the the wine skin to burst. Exactly what Jesus describes. And so, instead, what we need to do is put our new wine into new wine skins that have enough pliability, enough elasticity to to be able to handle the pressure of that fermentation process of the wine. And so again, I spoke to the couple of different alternatives of ways to deal with the new and the old with regard to the garment. Here, Jesus tells us we need new wineskins for this new wine. So that leads us then to ask what it is exactly that Jesus is telling us. What is he saying? It's, again, it's clear enough for us to understand what it is that he's describing, but what is the theological significance of that? Well, what Jesus seems to be saying uh, essentially is that, just to state plainly what's clear in the text, if His disciples were to engage in fasting like what John's disciples and the Pharisees are engaging in, then His disciples would essentially be putting new wine into old wineskins, patching an old garment with a new unshrunk cloth, engaging in mourning during a wedding festival. All things that are Foolish. And so implicitly, by saying that his disciples would be doing that if they did that type of fasting, he's saying that, he's asserting that, that John's disciples are doing that. That is what they are doing, either intentionally or inadvertently. But the question still remains, what precisely does Jesus mean? And there are a couple of, of, of questions wrapped up in, in, in that question that, that, that uh, demand our attention. One is, what do the old garment, old wineskin, so the old, and the new refer to? What are they intended to represent, right? What, are, what is Jesus pointing to with the old garment, the old wineskin, and the new wine, and the patch of unshrunk cloth? So that's the first question. What do these things signify? And then I think the second major question is this issue of what it means to replace the old with the new. And then what does that mean for the old, for the old wineskins, and we replace it with the new wineskins? So what do these things refer to, the old and the new, and what does it mean for this replacement to take place? Now, in in speaking to those questions, I think it's it's helpful to 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 highlight what I what I think Jesus does not mean here at the outset. First off, I I I don't think that there's there's anything to the 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 notion that there is just no discontinuity whatsoever between the old and and the new that it's just that, that there is nothing new there's no no change or replacement in, in any way. Um, some will look at the end of verse seventeen where Jesus speaks of both being preserved and and make that that argument, but it seems pretty clear there in verse seventeen that what Jesus is referring to when he says both are preserved is not the old and the new but the wine skin and the wine. So I don't think there's, I don't think that that argument holds up. That there is just no discontinuity. At the same time, I don't think that we ought to say that uh, that that there is just such sharp discontinuity that that there's such a such a wedge driven between old and new um, that the old is just completely trashed, completely uh, done away with. Um, this would be the interpretation that says that the old refers to something like um, something like the law or the old covenant that is then done away with and replaced by what is what is new. Um, and the reason why I want to pump the brakes on that reading is a passage like Matthew 5, 17, where Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And that notion of fulfillment... I think, has to do with Jesus' filling out or His realization of what all of these former things were anticipating, all of what these things were pointing to. There is certainly discontinuity between the former covenants and the new covenant accompanying the arrival of Jesus' kingdom, but that discontinuity does not, cannot mean that the former covenants are completely other, completely separate from what is now here, and therefore to just be trashed. Instead, I think a better way to look at this is that these former things have have accomplished their purpose, they've served their purpose in terms of God's larger plan of salvation history. So let me ask the question, having sort of highlighted the, 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 the two opposite extremes of the interpretation that there's complete continuity or there's complete discontinuity, Uh, Let me clarify what I think uh, makes sense when we read this passage. Just to remind you, what is clear in what Jesus is saying is that He is emphasizing that the kingdom of Christ has come. We cannot simply fill the old receptacles with the new wine of the kingdom because, as the metaphors illustrate, the old simply cannot contain everything that is brought in by the advent of the kingdom of Christ. And so they, they, they burst. They don't fit together. And so I think that if we want to be true to what is presented to us elsewhere in Matthew's gospel, rather than an understanding of the metaphors of the garments and the wineskins that equates the garment and wineskin with the Old Testament or the old covenants or even old legalistic practices of the Pharisees and John's disciples, I've already told you what I think about the legalism argument in this passage, but nonetheless, those are some of the options that people give for the old. Instead, I think it might be better to understand them as representative of a former understanding or a former interpretation of these things before the coming of Christ and His kingdom. In other words, the old wineskin does not equal the Old Testament or the Mosaic Covenant because if that were the case, then we might run the risk of one of the extreme interpretations that I mentioned A moment ago, um, it would be difficult to avoid the conclusion that Jesus is saying that we must just throw all of those things out like an old wineskin and replace it with something that's completely new and totally different in every way in order to fill this new wine into it that he has brought. But again, I think that seems implausible given what Jesus has to say about his relationship to the law and the prophets, to the old covenant back in Matthew 5, 17, as well as the links to which Matthew goes to demonstrate how Jesus fulfills the Scriptures. And so, in order to avoid such a conclusion, I think it's better to view the old wineskins, again, not as the Old Testament or the Old Covenant, but rather as a prior reading or understanding of these things that does not account for the presence of Jesus and His kingdom. So, what we need then in the replacement of the old wineskin with a new one, is not the abolition of the law and the prophets in order to completely replace them with this totally new, totally different thing, but rather a reformulation of our prior understanding of these things in light of the arrival of this new thing. That, I think, is what it means to replace the old wineskins with the new wineskins and so preserve both wine and wineskins. And I think we might affirm this interpretation further by looking back at the first metaphor of the bridegroom and the wedding attendants. The fact that Jesus responds to the question of John the Baptist's disciples in the way that he does highlights that the major piece that is being overlooked by John's disciples is the very thing that makes all the difference in the world the very key that would help them to understand that they are operating with an outdated conception of things because they have not accounted for the one thing that so radically transforms everything, throwing everything that has come before into a new light. And that is the presence of the Messiah and the coming of His kingdom. And so rather than recognizing the presence of Christ and His kingdom and coming to understand how that should impact everything all the way from how they read the Old Testament to how they engage in rituals such as fasting, they are trying to take what they may have heard and experienced of Jesus' ministry up to this point and simply patch it onto the old cloth, simply fill up that old wineskin with it. And as a result, they wind up mourning while a wedding is going on, causing an even greater rift to emerge on their garment. And setting themselves up for a burst and ruined wineskin. All right. So let's turn finally to the question of what does this mean for us? How can we then apply this? Begin by again first reminding you that Jesus doesn't condemn John the Baptist's disciples for fasting or how they're doing it even. The main issue is their failure to notice that the Messianic age has dawned. That's the key. That's the new garment. That's the new uh, wineskin, is understanding, recognizing the Messianic age has dawned and allowing that to inform, to interpret, to reorient everything else. Okay. Well, in light of that, one thing that I think we might say is that we may continue to fast. So... This gives us permission to continue fasting. In fact, he gave specific instructions about how we are to do that back in Matthew 6, right? And there are indeed many good reasons to do so. But we need to recognize that the fasting that we engage in is now different than the fasting that came before. The fasting that came before was undertaken by a people anticipating the advent of their Messiah, a people who had experienced exile and oppression, who longed for salvation out of such a situation. The fasting that takes place now, while anticipating the return of the Messiah, the longing that we, sang, that we sang about this morning, is undertaken from a vantage point that can look back upon the initial advent of the Messiah. The Messiah has come. He has delivered us from uh, our lives as exiled sinners by bringing us into His kingdom, and we anticipate that the Messiah will come again and will deliver us completely. And this puts a whole different spin on how we are to view fasting and even how we are to undertake fasting. And this is, again, this is key in order to to not be uh, uh, putting new new wine into old wineskins. John Piper, when he uh, uh, preached on this passage, um, I think that he summarized it really well, uh, the difference between the old fasting and the new fasting. And so I want to read some of what he had to say. Quote, The yearning and longing and ache of the old fasting was not based on the glorious truth that the Messiah had come. The mourning over sin and the yearning and danger was not based on the great finished work of the Redeemer and the great revelation of Himself and His grace in history. But now, the bridegroom has come. In coming, He struck the decisive blow against sin and against Satan and against death. The great central decisive act of salvation for us today is Past, not future. And on the basis of that past work of the bridegroom, nothing can ever be the same again. The wine is new. The blood is shed. The lamb is slain. The punishment of our sins is executed. Death is defeated. The bridegroom is risen. The spirit is sent. The wine is new. And the old fasting mindset is simply not adequate. What's new about the new fasting is that it rests on all this finished work of the bridegroom. The yearning that we feel for revival or awakening or deliverance from corruption is not merely longing and aching. It's not merely longing and aching. The first fruits of what we long for have already come. The down payment of what we yearn for is already paid. The fullness that we are longing for and fasting for has appeared in history and we have beheld His glory. It is not merely future. We have tasted the powers of the age to come and our new fasting is not because we are hungry for something we have not tasted, but because the new wine of Christ's presence is so real and so satisfying. The newness of our fasting is this, Its intensity comes not because we have never tasted the wine of Christ's presence, but because we have tasted it so wonderfully by His Spirit and cannot now be satisfied until the consummation of joy arrives. And so that points, secondly, to this notion of longing, reminds us that Jesus indicated that we don't, His disciples, it's not appropriate for them to mourn when He's with them, but when the bridegroom's taken away, they will mourn. And here we are in between the bridegroom being taken away and his return. That's where we are. We're in that second half of that sentence, when they will fast, which indicates that there is much during this time, which we ought not to be surprised. There is still much for which we might experience sorrow. There is much for which we mourn. It was not appropriate for the wedding attendants to mourn while the bridegroom was with them, but when he is taken away, they will fast, implying that there is at this time a longing, a sorrow, a time of mourning after the bridegroom is taken away and before his return. And in thinking about that, I'm reminded that many of us here in this room have very recently experienced things like the tragic loss of loved ones, the delivery of terrible medical diagnoses, loved ones and friends in distressing and terrifying situations, and even on a more personal level, things like anxiety and despair and depression. We find ourselves in this in-between period like the psalmist and like the souls of those around the throne in Revelation 6 crying out, How long, O Lord? We find ourselves in the period between when the bridegroom has come and been taken away and when he shall return. And so, as Jesus predicted, we fast because there remains a longing, a mourning, a lingering sorrow. But the situation is different now. Because, to borrow from what the Apostle Paul says, we do not mourn as those who have no hope. While we continue to sorrow now, we rest on the finished work of Christ accomplished in His first advent and look ahead to that great day when Jesus comes again in glory and wipes away every tear and does away with all mourning and suffering and death Forevermore. So when we fast, we do so as children of the kingdom, separated from our bridegroom only for a season, yet resting in the glorious promises which he left us with and in the powerful presence of his Holy Spirit. And we do so with fresh garments and fresh wineskins, equipped to contain the full blessing of the gospel and the hope of that gospel of Jesus Christ, which is both our salvation now and for all of eternity. And so one final thing, and then I'll close. A song that we sang already this morning, uh, which is so incredibly beautiful and so illustrative of this, this, this having tasted of the first fruits of the kingdom. We've sampled the buffet of the Messianic banquet. And we long for the return of the bridegroom. The song we sang this morning, which has been on my mind so much this week in preparing this message, is that song that we sang, The Sands of Time are Sinking. And I, I just want to recite a couple of, of stanzas and, and, and then I'll close, um, which, which point to that, 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 that reminder that though we fast... But we mourn in this period? It's very different because we look to Christ, the first fruits of His kingdom, the results of that first advent, and long for the fullness of the Messianic wedding feast. And so, I'll just read a couple of stanzas. O oh Christ, He is the fountain, the deep, deep well of love. The streams on earth I've tasted; more deep I'll drink above. There, to an ocean, fullness, His mercy doth expand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. The bride eyes not her garments, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my King of grace. Not at the crown He giveth, but on His pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Amen.